Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. After high school, Barnhouse enrolled in Biola Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey, and he did personal work with Thomas Corwin Horton. Later on, one of Barnhouse's professors at Princeton Seminary said, Donald Barnhouse got his theology from Biola, not Princeton. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a study of Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Mark chapter 9. We have been studying successively these great stories of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we come this morning to verses 33 and following. I'm going to read four or five verses using Philip's paraphrase. So they came to Capernaum, and when they got indoors, he asked them, What were you discussing as we came along? They were silent. On the way, they had been arguing about who should be the greatest. Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If any man wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Then he took a little child and stood him in front of them all, and putting his arms around him said to them, Anyone who welcomes one little child like this for my sake is welcoming me. And the man who welcomes me is welcoming not only me, but the one who sent me. Now, the Lord began this little incident by asking them a question. Let's get the picture Remember, he'd been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with three disciples. And there'd been the amazing scene that gave a picture of what shall be when he comes again. As they came down, they met the nine disciples in a dispute with scribes and Pharisees. And there was a wonder as to why the nine had not fulfilled what he had commanded them when he gave them power over unclean spirits. Because the chief Matter of concern at that moment was a father who had a son who had a deaf and dumb spirit, a demon who threw him down and and tore him. And Jesus groaned within himself because of their lack of faith, and he taught the father certain things on how faith should grow. And the father answered, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And Jesus healed the boy. And they turned around and they left. And At that moment it was that he spoke to them as they departed, spoke to them that he must go to Jerusalem and die and rise again. And they were mystified. They didn't understand what he meant. They had no idea that the Messiah had to die and rise again. So now the twelve left, and Jesus may have been with John or one of the other disciples, or he may have walked on alone, and the crowd of the twelve may have followed him. But this little company went across, the country, and as they went, there was a conversation. Now, very probably, they talked in tones that were low enough not to have reached the outward ears of Jesus Christ, but he's God, and he always knows every conversation. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ said, what were you talking about as you were walking along? And it says they were silent. No wonder they were silent. Because their conscience struck them. They'd been having an argument as to who was going to have the most important place. Just as though a group of politicians should say, now look, the six of us ought to be ambassadors. And one says, well, I want to be ambassador to London. And the other says, I want France. I want Paris. I want London. Just to, That's the way the disciples were. Oh, was there nothing better to talk about when he had just two minutes before said, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and die and rise again. Did this rise out of the fact that the three came back to the nine and said, boys, you should have been with us. We were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus was transfigured and God spoke to us and we heard it out of heaven and the nine sort of bit their fingers and the three had some advantage. Well, why should Peter, James, and John be signaled to go out to the top of the mountain? It may have risen that way. People are very human. Remember that it's through envy that they delivered Jesus. Very frequently you'll find that new denominations have been started, not because of faithfulness to the doctrine, but because one man, finding that he could not be big frog in a big puddle, said, I'll go and have a puddle of my own where I can be big frog in a little puddle. And then he looked around for a doctrine and said, I'm being faithful to the word of God. Thus you have many divisions in the churches and in the individual congregations, people that want prominence. This is our nature, the nature of every one of us. Well, did it rise, did this conversation rise from the fact that he had just said, that there was going to be a great crisis. They understood that something was happening. Dying and rising they may not have understood. But at all events, what he had said stirred up their ambition and not their affection. It should have been that what he revealed to them could have said, Lord, we love thee more and we want to follow very close to thee and take every cue from thee to know where to move and when to move that we should live that way for that's the way we should live. I've just been hearing in the last day or two the lieutenant in the Navy flying a very secret kind of plane had to teach a young ensign some cross-country flying. And the young ensign had to do all the navigation and decide where to go. And they had to fly at 700 feet above the ground, very close coming. And it was the duty of the ensign to navigate. And it was the duty of his older officer, to see to it that at no time his wing was more than a foot or two away from the other. You've seen them sometimes flying that way. It's done by very great practice because it's necessary when you're flying in war in enemy territory to see that no one man is by himself because the enemy can dive on him and pick him off. It's very close coordination. And the Lord says, that's the way you've got to walk with me. I'm the navigator. You just see that your wingtip is kept to my wingtip, and you never know which direction I'm going to go. Now, that's what they should have done. But instead of arousing their affection and saying, we must be with him, we must move where he moves, and we must go where he goes, their ambition was aroused. He's going to be the Messiah. What are we going to get? Now, in the Christian life, there are ambitions. And the Lord Jesus has to teach us that in our daily life, we're to learn 
But when we become Christians, we look in another direction and we're doing something quite different. In passing, it should be noted that the Lord Jesus Christ did not have to hear their answer. It says they were silent. But he knew what they'd been talking about. And his question and the teaching showed that he knows what goes on at a distance and what goes on in the hearts of those and the lives of those that are his without being told. We can't hide anything from Jesus Christ. He did not learn what they'd been talking about by overhearing them. Similarly, we remember that Peter had a conversation with a man and someone says, does your master pay taxes? Yes, yes, he pays taxes. And far away from Peter in that conversation, Jesus was, but he knew what was going on. And when Peter came back, Peter, does a king pay taxes? No, you've just got me on the tax roll, so the miracle must take place so you can pay my taxes. I'm using this to illustrate that the Lord Jesus knew what was going on at a distance. He knew what was going on in conversation. We go to the house of Simon the Pharisee, we see a woman at the feet of Jesus, and Simon thought, he didn't even say it out loud, Simon thought, if this man were the Messiah, would he allow a woman like this at his feet? And Jesus knew what he was thinking and said, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. And so this is one more of the verses that prove that the Lord Jesus Christ is Jehovah God, that he knew everything that was going on in your heart, lives. Now, this would be intolerable if any human being had this gift. If I had the gift of knowing every thought in the life and the heart and understanding of every one of you, you'd never come in church again for fear that I'd look at you. You'd never come to this church. You'd go someplace else where someone didn't know what you were thinking. I don't know what goes on behind the mask of your smile or your frown, but Jesus Christ does. He can hear your conversation. He knows all about it. So let this be a very solemn warning to us. We can hide nothing from Jesus Christ. And how, how gracious it is to hear that he knows our frame and that he remembers that we're dust. It would be intolerable for us to meet any human being who knew all that we think. And this is one of the proofs that Jesus Christ is God. For the fact that he knows it draws us to him and we say, yes, Lord, you know. You know what I am. He's never been astonished by anything silly that you ever did. He's never been astonished by anything wicked that you ever did. He's never been astonished at the sewage in your thoughts at times. He's never been astonished by any mistake you made, any sin you committed. Now, this teaches us another lesson, that we may be loquacious on the road, but we will be silent in his presence when we face him. Oh yes, we talk, we live, we chatter, but come into the presence of the Lord and immediately, immediately, there's difference. I wrote a story in Eternity Magazine. Wilbur Smith told it to me of something that happened some time ago in a barber shop in Chicago. A man went into a barber shop and was sitting waiting for his turn to get his hair cut. There were six or eight barbers and the place was filled with customers. They were talking to one barber who was evidently, according to the conversation, a bachelor and who was a Lothario and who boasted much about his conquests of women. And the conversation was vile as they were trying to tell him why he was late that morning and why he had better be careful because his hands were trembling as he cut hair. And he said, you can't blame me. 
He said, who wouldn't if he had a chance? And the Christian man who had come in and sitting there in that moment when this fellow said, who'd blame me? Who wouldn't if he had the chance? said, Jesus Christ wouldn't. There was a dead silence in the barber shop and the noise of the clicking of the scissors cutting, chair, uh, cutting hair sounded very loud. 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. All of a sudden, something. <clears throat> well, I see that the Cubs won their game yesterday. And everybody began to start about baseball, and the conversation changed immediately. The, the mere mention of the name of Jesus Christ had brought men face to face with the fact of holiness and of the fact that they, by nature, are foul. And this is what happened when they walked in the house that day. They'd been out on the road. Well, who's going to be greatest? I want the main position. How do that? And Jesus comes in and says, what were you talking about? Silence. Now, note that something that did not appear to be wrong in itself was revealed in its true character when brought out by the Lord Jesus Christ. To talk together, to plan, may not appear to be wrong in itself, but the minute you bring it into the presence of Jesus Christ, you'll discover that something that Oh, they might say they wouldn't have been ashamed if any other man had come in and had overheard the tag end of their conversation. They wouldn't have been ashamed. But the fact that the Lord Jesus knew it and that they knew that he knew it immediately revealed it for what it is. What's wrong about chatter, chatter, chatter? Not merely about who shall be the greatest, but what's wrong with a great deal of your chatter? When you meet together, when you talk, when you waste time, just by chattering, 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 let's face it, there are many things that we do as though they were all right and did not need to be brought under the scrutiny of his gaze, will be seen in their true light when he comes again. Remember that 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm talking to Christians. I'm not speaking to unsaved people who need Christ. I'm speaking to people who have Christ, who believe that Jesus Christ took your place. Did you ever stop to realize that what we might say, a motion picture of your life and a sound recording and a tape even of your thoughts will be there to face you? Jesus said we shall give an account of every idle word, and you will too. You shall give an account of every idle word. Well, someone says, does the Lord mean that we can't tell a joke? No, he doesn't mean that. The Lord made us with a nature to enjoy life, but we must see to it that the trivial, that the things that don't matter, do not take the dominating place in our life. And so the Lord Jesus made much of this. I want you to note the formal way in which he treated it. He said, what were you talking about? And they were silent. So Jesus said, come here, all 12 of you. Stand there, and Jesus sat down and takes the place of Lord and teacher. He brings a little child and puts the child in front of him. This is the problem he now sets before them. You've been talking about being great. What is the road to true greatness? There are two things. If you want to be great, he that would be great must be last and least. Now, this is extraordinary. You'll see it there in verse 35. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. 
Now these two are quite different, to be last of all and to be servant of all. And the two are the methods by which a man shall come to true greatness. Last of all is the expression of personal humility. Servant of all is the expression of ministry. Last of all is what you are. Servant of all is what you do. Now, if you want to be great in the sight of God, you must pay attention to these two things. For a humility that does nothing is not the true humility. And service that is not humble is not acceptable. Last and the servant. Now, if a man goes out in service, serves and says, see what I'm doing? I'm doing this. I am, I am. See, I'm doing it. He can finally make everyone feel uneasy about him and hate what he does because he's always talking about it. No, humility has to work and work has to be humble. So we put these two things together and we begin to learn a very close scrutiny of them will show that these two things are the two factors that make up true love. Love puts itself last, and love is willing to minister and to serve. A minister who's a friend of mine was also in the Far East when we were there, and at Karawazawa, where there were several hundred missionaries, we were preaching to them. Larry Love of Lauderdale, Florida, was talking about these things and about the life of the missionaries out in lonely places where husband and wife might be the only two Americans within a hundred miles and where they had to be self-sufficient in their family love unit. And he was talking about it. He said, now, what we've got to realize that is if people say that love has to be a 50-50 proposition, they're wrong. He says, any marriage or love that's merely 50-50 is soon going to go on the rocks, and there are going to be difficulties. He said, love is not 50-50. Love is 100-100. The 100% giving of self, and the other gives 100% of self so that there is the complete exchange of love toward each other. Now, if there is true love, there is no thought of degree. These fellows were talking about degree. Where shall I be? Who shall have the highest place? There was no love. If there are gifts, they must be seen as loans to be used for others. If God has given you any gift whatsoever, this is a gift that you must use if your gift is being uh, a surgeon, you must be always thinking of how you can relieve and help. If yours is a gift, as God I know has given me the gift of being able to stand up in front of an audience and speak so that they will understand, that gift must be used for the people, must be used for your growth. Now you have a gift, and don't say that you do not have, because God says that he has given to every believer some gift. And you may be sure of the fact that he has given you that gift to profit each other and for edification that we may be built together. This is why sometimes in my prayer I am deeply concerned over the fact that in a great church like this in the center of the city it becomes a preaching point where you come and you listen and you go away and you do not exercise your gifts towards each other. That's why there should be church membership and activity where you should think 
Now God has given me a gift and I must move into a community of other believers where I can find what little thing I can do and how I can grow, how I can teach, how I can work, how I can find out some need and exercise my love in that direction. And then the Lord used a sermon illustration of the little child because the principles which he had just set forth he now exhibits in the way he touches this child. The child was a child, and the child knew he was a child. And the Lord says, you must become as this little child. The child didn't think, well, I wish I were one of these twelve and could go around with these men. I'd like to have a big place, too. No, the child didn't think that. The child knew he was a child. The child was least, and he had no desire to be among them as an equal. Now, remember, the Lord was saying two things. He that would be great, he must be least and servant. Two principles. And now the first of these is illustrated in the child. He was the least. But how could he be the illustration of service? He couldn't be. His strength was such that he could not be a servant. His hands were little hands. He could not do anything in helping these 13 men. There was no task that he could perform for them. Well... Was there no example then? Alexander McLaren has a paragraph on this that's very, very beautiful. McLaren writes, Was there then no example in this scene of that other requirement? The child represented least simplicity. What about the service? Surely there was, for the child was not left standing shy in the midst, but before embarrassment became weeping, he was caught up in Christ's arms, and he was folded to Christ's heart. He had been taken as the instance of humility, and he then became the subject of that very tender ministry. Christ and he divided the illustration between them, the illustration of the whole law. And the very inmost nature of true service was shown in our Lord's loving clasp and soothing pressure to his heart. It is as if he had said, Look, this is how you must serve, for you cannot help the weak unless you open your arms and hearts to them. And so Jesus, with the child held to his bosom, is the living law of service. And the child nestling close to him because sure of his love is the type of the trustful affection which we must evoke if we are to serve or help. Now God has put us here in the midst of this world. And we in all America are being taught by thousands of voices that it is the nobility of service and that we must just be willing to serve. We have clubs that are service clubs. And they try to find out what they can do in towns and town planning and parks and building and hospitals for children and so on. All of this has been learned from Christianity. It is a byproduct of Christianity. You will not find anything like a rotary club originating in a Mohammedan world or in a Confucian world or in a Buddhist world. Christianity plowed the field, made all the furrows, this the ground and harrowed it and then in the shadow of the churches men can start these things 
but always the original impetus came from those who were Christians. And to me, it is a very serious matter that these things grew up outside of the church. For if the church had been everything that it should have been, there would have been no need for all of these clubs that come to do social service work. They would have done, been done within the sphere of the church. We live in a world of great need. It's hard, perhaps, for Americans to realize this because we look out and we do not see too much of it. Our lives are guarded. You live in your home and you travel to your office and you go back to your home and you come to church and you go back to your home and you have a little entertainment nearby and you go back to your home and your children go down the street to the school and come back to your home and you're protected even from from Philadelphia there are probably there are probably very few people here that have seen the horrors the horrible horrors of the hundreds of blocks in this city where and there are hundreds of blocks where in every house there are living as many as 50 people eight and ten to one room there are tens of thousands of people in the most abject filth and poverty all of these things exist and yet our civilization is so built that one half doesn't know how the other half lives take your car sometime and instead of driving as fast as you drive go very slowly up and down the slum streets of Philadelphia after school and look at the children playing in the streets what chance do they have? I tell you, they are what they are and they become what they become because people do not understand the true greatness consists in opening arms to the children. The child is there, the most tremendous illustration of human need, and yet Jesus says, anyone who welcomes one of these little children welcomes me, and anybody who welcomes me welcomes my Father who sent me. I know that the vast majority of you this morning will shrug this off, and you'll say, well... I give my dollar the Red Cross in the hospital. If they get hurt, why, they'll take care and take care of them. I mustn't be disturbed. I have my little life. I have my set of television programs I look at and the books I read and the friends with whom I chatter. And I go to church and I give God his tip from 11 to 12 on Sunday morning and he should be quite pleased with what I do. And I want to go about my life. And the Lord Jesus says, wait a minute. You're choosing not greatness. You're choosing poverty. He that would be greatest among you must learn these two principles, that the method is to be least and to be servant, to be humble and yet work, and to work and yet be humble. Combine these things in what is love, that our hearts and minds may be open toward what can I do to help. And then by faith, and through all that we learn in the missionary cause to look out where there are so many children, young and old, in the dark places of this earth that live in such depths of misery that it's almost inconceivable to the mind that has not seen. For even if you go into the slums of Philadelphia, they live better than millions of people in the stinking cesspools of the eight million people in Saigon. It was a city of one million ten years ago. And seven more million people have come in there as refugees. Or Calcutta. 
with its vast and teeming millions. And I tell you, the lowest person in our country lives above what they live there. You see these things and you say, Lord, I, I am my brother's keeper. You go to Calcutta at sunrise, see them turn on the water in the gutter, see the people come out of the alleys, thousands of people, and go to the gutter and begin to wash. A baby will urinate in the gutter and 50 feet below, others will be washing their teeth. In the same water, a mother will bring a child and wash the baby's body in that water. And thus it goes, and the people go on their way. It's hot country, and they need no clothing except one rag around them. And sometimes they don't have money enough to have a rag. And their food, all they'll ever have from one day's end to the other, they're happy if they have the amount of rice that they have can hold in one hand. Now, this is the world today around us. This is a world so low that there it is in its need, need so great that it's difficult to explain it. And people who live in the way we live are totally unable to comprehend the horrors of human misery that engulf people by the millions. And over against all this, Jesus takes a child and says to you and to me, do you want to be great? Then he says, you must be least, and you must be servant. You must hold out your arms, and whenever God gives you the opportunity, enfold to yourself some portion of this world's need, and let men know that God loves, and that Jesus died in order that men might be lifted, to know him better and to love him more. I'm going to pronounce the benediction, and the Holy Spirit has to draw conclusions in each different heart and life, each has to work this out with the Holy Spirit for himself. Be sure you don't dust it off of your hands and walk your own way instead of his. Our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit will bless this truth to our heart and that we may know what it is to love. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.